0: The superscription here says, to the choir master, to Jeduthan, a psalm of David. Now, whether that should be two Jeduthan or four Jeduthan is difficult to say. Jeduthan was one of the main musicians that David appointed and supported after bringing the ark to rest in the city of Jerusalem. David began to position Jerusalem as the center and locus of all Israelite worship. So He wanted music, he wanted liturgy, he wanted songs, and so he hired and supported a huge number of singers, composers, and instrumentalists. We first hear about Jaduthun in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 41 to 42. The text says, "...with them were Heman and Jaduthun, and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever." Heman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song, quote. Later in 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1, Jaduthan is described as being a prophet of some kind. 1 Chronicles 25 verse 1 says, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps and with symbols, closed quote. The identification of Jeduthun as a prophet of some kind is actually strengthened in 2 Chronicles 35, 15, where it says, the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place according to the command of David, and Asaph, and Heman, and Jeduthun, the king's seer, and the gatekeepers were at each gate, closed quote. So putting that all together, it appears as though Jaduthan was the head of an official worship guild. His family, his sons, were all employed in the worship ministry associated with the Ark and later the temple in Jerusalem. So the sons obviously reported to their father, and their father, Jeduthan, reported to the king. He was obviously a skilled musician and a recognized prophet. So here in Psalm 39, it appears that David is collaborating with Jaduthun. The exact nature of that collaboration is impossible to determine. Perhaps David wrote this devotional poem and then sent it to Jaduthun so that he could turn it into a hymn that would be sung by the entire congregation. That seems entirely plausible, but as I said, an exact reconstruction just isn't possible given the scarcity of information. What we can say is that this psalm has historically been understood as an individual lament with strong undertones of traditional Hebrew wisdom. In fact, it, it reads almost like a lyrical version of the book of Ecclesiastes. We assume that David wrote this psalm late in his life. It feels like the wise reflection of an older man Attempting to come to grips with the brevity of life and the seeming erosion of his influence and significance. David is overwhelmed and distressed. But he is also very cautious about how he wants to express that. He doesn't want to lash out at God. He doesn't want to say something that he'll later come to regret. So he vacillates between silence and prayer. He goes through that rotation twice, which in essence provides the structure of the psalm. It has a basic ABC, ABC pattern. It moves from silence to prayer to another prayer, and then it repeats that pattern, moving from silence again to prayer again to a closing prayer. You can see the first silence in verses one to three, followed by the first prayer in verses four to six, and then the closing prayer of the first section in verses seven to eight, And then the whole pattern repeats. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me, as I mused the fire burned and I spoke with my tongue. We'll just pause here to appreciate David's wisdom and self-control. He was distressed. He was upset. His heart was hot within him. That same expression is used in Deuteronomy 19.6 to describe the emotional state of the avenger of blood who is chasing down someone who has killed a member of his family. So this is not mild agitation. David is riled up here and he, he knows that if he opens his mouth right now, if he vents his spleen, as grandma used to say, then he is very likely going to say something unfortunate, maybe even something blasphemous. So he wisely holds his peace. And we could learn from that. Sometimes our first reaction to evil or injustice is not our best reaction. David is agitated by the presence of some wicked people. He says that in verse 1. So there's a sense in which, His reactions are righteous. We should be upset by the presence of wicked people. We shouldn't be content to see their schemes succeed. We should wonder why it is that they escape the punishment and recompense that they deserve. What gives? Is, is God asleep? Does he not see what's going on? Does he not care? It's perfectly normal to think those things, but it is perhaps unwise to say those things to anyone but God himself. You see, you you always have to be thinking about the effect that your words could have on other people. Asaph, another one of those professional worship leaders appointed by David, was also wise enough to think about that. In Psalm 73, Asaph says, "'If I had said, I will speak thus, "'I would have betrayed the generation of your children.'" Now, Asaph, of course, was struggling with the exact same issue that David is struggling with here. Asaph was bugged that wicked people were prospering in the land while decent people, godly people, were struggling. He was going to say something about that. But thankfully, by the grace of God, he managed to keep his mouth shut. He didn't speak out of his confusion and bitterness. He waited until after he had worshiped. Asaph says in verse 17 of Psalm 73, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, quote. So Asaph went into the sanctuary, he went into worship, And then God revealed some things to him. God spoke to him. Now, how he did that, we don't know. But we were reminded that these worship leaders were also prophets. So maybe God spoke directly, or maybe he just led him there through the liturgy. We don't know. What we know is that Asaph was helped by God to see the whole board. God stretched out the horizon for him, and all of a sudden, he got it. Nobody gets away with anything. He realized that. It it may look like the wicked are prospering, but they are not. So then Asaph was happy that he hadn't said anything. And because of that, all Asaph has to repent over was his rotten internal disposition, which he does in verses 21 to 22 of Psalm 73. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Closed quote. But at least I didn't blaspheme, right? I mean, I felt some stuff. I was processing some stuff, but at least I didn't verbalize it. That would have been unwise. And that's exactly the sort of wise course of action that David is pursuing here. He says, I, I have some thoughts on this. I have some feelings, but I'm not going to speak about it. If David were alive today, this is the moment when he would tweet out, I'm taking a little break from Twitter. See you all back here in a month. <laughs> that's wisdom. I've got some feelings. I'm having reactions. But I'm not going to spew right now. I'm not going to speak or write or tweet right now. I'm, I'm going to be quiet. And then I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to pray some more. <laughs> that's brilliant. And that's exactly what David does next. Look at verse 4. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So, rather than simply railing against what he sees here as the harsh realities of life, David wants to learn the lesson. He wants to understand what this is all about. He is distressed by the brevity of life, his life in particular. He is disheartened to see the erosion of his influence. As an older man, he is He's feeling forgotten and bypassed as everyone jockeys now for favor with his sons. You can see that, of course, in the opening chapters of First Kings. Joab has thrown in his lot with Adonijah, as have many others, but Nathan and Bathsheba favor Solomon, whom David favors as well. But the point is, David is already fading to the margins of the story. He's an old man now, and everyone is scrambling for position and influence in the next administration. Huh. How'd that happen? David wonders. I mean, yesterday, it was my favor that everyone was eager to have. Now they just want me to die so that they can get on with things. What was it all about, Lord? What did I accomplish? Anything? Anything that will last beyond next Tuesday? What was the point? What was I supposed to learn? What was the purpose? And those are the sorts of questions David is asking of the Lord. He continues in verse 7. And and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. The NIV for this middle portion of the psalm might be slightly preferable, might help you make sense of the movement of the psalm it says but now lord what do i look for my hope is in you save me from all my transgressions do not make me the scorn of fools the hebrew connecting particle there at the start of verse 7 can be and and it can be but but probably works better as a way of closing the one prayer and beginning the next the first prayer was exploratory. This prayer is a prayer for deliverance, or as the NIV has it, for salvation. Save me. So David is saying, life is short. I, I grossly overestimated my own significance. My, my influence is fading. My grip is weakening. I have every reason to be falling into depression here. But now, Lord, what am I looking for? What, what do I wait for? I wait for you. My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Save me. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Do you see that? As as David's grip on this life begins to weaken, his grip on God becomes all the more important to him. Willem van Gemmeren says here, the intent of his prayer, save me, in verse 8, is nothing less than reconciliation with God and divine vindication, closed quote. We've talked many times about how vindication is inseparable from the Hebrew conception of salvation. That's what David is asking for here. Save me. I want to be reconciled with God. I want to be vindicated in the eyes of my enemies. In verse 9, the cycle begins again. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So again, the reflections in verses 9 to 13 parallel those found in verses 1 to 8. David is silent again. He's having more thoughts. He's having more feelings. But once again, he's wise enough not to let those out in public. I'm keeping this in. I'm working this over because I'm dealing with some explosive stuff here, God. You are the author of all of this. You're the one behind it. Now, here, David is saying exactly what Moses said in Psalm 90, in what we believe to be the oldest psalm in the entire Bible. In Psalm 90, verses 9 to 11, Moses says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you close quote moses is reflecting on the exact same problem the brevity and seeming hopelessness of human life what can we accomplish in 70 or 80 years how much of an impact can we really have on the world in, in so short a time and why does the world seem to resist all our best efforts as strongly and aggressively as it does? We build a house and the wind blows it down. We, we dig an irrigation channel and the rain causes it to erode and fill with silt. We, we raise up children and, and, and then their children abandon the faith and wander off into ruin. Why is this life so incredibly hard? Who thinks about that, Moses says. Old people do. Dads and, and, and grandpas sitting in chairs under a blanket in their rooms waiting to die. That's David in this story. He's an old man now, totally undone by the difficulty of life in this fallen world. Moses in Psalm 90 says that it all goes back to the wrath of God. We sinned. Human beings rebelled against God in the garden. We blew it we tried to be god deciding right and wrong for ourselves we weren't content with our station so we led a revolt and and we got kicked out and the world fell under the curse and now things are really hard we are are greatly diminished and the world is filled with thorns and thistles and every little garden we try to grow is overtaken by weeds and is returned to the jungle seemingly moments after we breathe our last breath upon the earth. And it's God that's doing it. David knows that. Look at verse 10. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. (laughs) Why are you doing this, God? What explains your hostility toward the children of men? Why won't you give us a chance? How are we supposed to live good lives on the earth when the conditions are so brutally unfavorable? Have we so offended you? Those are David's big thoughts. He's, He's having big feelings and he's asking big questions. By the way, commentators frequently remark here how similar David's thoughts and questions are to those asked by Job in Job 7, 16 to 18. And the similarities are remarkable. Listen to what Job says when he is having his his big feelings. He says, verse 16, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? So again, this is where deep thinkers go when they begin to process the brevity and seeming futility of human life. Why does it have to be so hard? Why does the resistance have to be so fierce? And, and, and since everything is ultimately authored by God, then the big money question here is why does God want it to be so hard? Why does God make it so hard? What is the deal with God's seeming obsession with the children of men? What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, that you devise tests and trials and visit afflictions and challenges on him day and night. What's up with that, God? That's the big money question. You figure that out, you solve the whole puzzle. And, of course, no one in the Bible will figure that out in all of its glorious complexity until God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. What is man indeed? He <laughs> He must be something far more precious to God than we realize. But David isn't there yet. And so David's closing prayer is remarkably similar to Job's prayer in chapter 7. David here says, beginning in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest of Like all my fathers, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Job, in Job 7, verse 19, right after he says, What is man that you make so much of him and visit him every morning and test him every moment? Says, How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? (laughs) I just want to die in peace, God. Can you just call a halt? Can you just go and do something else for a while? Can't you study the whales or make some new planet or something? This little man needs a rest. That's what Job says. That's what David says here. Look at verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Just let me die in peace. Don't, don't put me through any more tests, okay? Don't show me any more thorns and thistles in my pathetic little garden. Just leave me for a few moments with my delusions so that I can at least die with a tiny smile on my face. That's where this psalm lands. It's pretty heavy. But this is an aspect of wisdom literature, David is standing solidly in the wisdom tradition here, and if anything, he's actually doing a little better with this topic than did Job and then did Koheleth. Koheleth is how scholars typically refer to the author of Ecclesiastes. The word means roughly the preacher or the lecturer. He went down this road too. If anything, he went further and deeper than David, and it took a remarkable toll upon him. In fact, Peter Craigie says here, commenting on David's closing prayer, it is the kind of prayer Koheleth might have prayed if he could have summoned sufficient faith. Quote. Koheleth went deep on this one, and it beat him up. But David fares a little better. He he never stops thinking of God as a loving God, a God that will hear his prayers, and that will make a space for him at his side when all is said and done. He says in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Well, that's covenant language. That's faith language. And David never gave it up, even in this moment of near despair. David ends on a bit of an awkward note. He says, in essence, in in, in verse 13, I can't figure this out. I can't process this any further. So just give me a break so that I can pass in peace. Thankfully, God is gracious. (laughs) Jesus didn't listen to Peter when he said, Away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. (laughs) Derek Kidner says here, He knows how men speak when they are desperate. He does indeed. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into of the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word.